From The Advocate magazine in partnership with GLAAD, this is LGBTQ&A. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and for a while I've been watching as social justice slideshows have taken over Instagram. It kind of seems like everyone is becoming an activist. And I don't think this is bad by any means, but it does make it more difficult to know who, in addition to posting on social media, is also doing more traditional forms of activism. Who is doing work on the ground, attending protests, planning actions? Who is engaging the appropriate parties behind the scenes to try to achieve certain things? Or am I just wrong, and this is all activism, and that's okay? You know, I'm not the first person to say this, but there is a performative aspect of social media that has caused us to become more obsessed with appearing to be good people and less obsessed with actually being good people. Good people there can be defined in any number of ways. So that is all to say that I do not know exactly how I feel about this new form of activism, and you will hear that in today's interview with Adam Eli. Adam is an activist, a community organizer, and he clarified a lot for me, helping me to reframe how I think about social media. Adam is also the author of the book, The New Queer Conscience, and he really takes a global view when it comes to his work. The thesis of everything he does is that queer people anywhere are responsible for queer people everywhere. I learned a lot from Adam, and I think you will too. So let's hear it. I'm excited to talk to you because I am so fascinated by this rise of Instagram activism. And, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but it does complicate or change how I think about what activism is or isn't. So I wonder if you can start off by talking about how you personally define activism and how that definition has changed with social media. So I'll answer the first part first. I view activism as finding an issue within society and either drawing attention to that issue or providing a creative solution. And I view social media as one of the tools to do that. So I think that I ask that because I used to have this more traditional view of activism. As an example, like people in ACT UP, community organizers as activists, planning and attending protests, getting towards a specific goal, as you said. And it's harder for me now to tell like who are the activists who are like on the ground doing that work compared to just, you know, posting infographics as an example on Instagram. No, definitely. And that's why I think the word community organizer is really helpful because community organizer does a lot of the work. I think activism is a really, really big term. And I think that that's good. I think of it as an umbrella term. It's a very, very inclusive term. But if you want to talk about that traditional type where you're, you know, boots on the ground, bringing people together, concrete, direct action, as they call it, I think the word community organizer can be really helpful. And if you think about what ACT UP does, ACT UP did so many things, but one of the things they did was they dispersed information and tried to explain it to the world, which is why ACT UP was always, ACT UP was always, always known for being extremely media savvy. You know, they would bring camcorders, camcorders are like handheld recorders to hospitals and they would bring them to protests and then they would make videos and send them to news companies and send them to their parents and send them to all over the world to show them what the front lines of the AIDS crisis was. So could you imagine what they would have been able to do with Instagram Live? Oh, right. Because this is just one other tool. And had it existed back then, like ACT UP would have taken advantage of it so hard. Exactly. And so another big thing that Ann Northup, who I think you've had on your podcast, right? Yes. She always talks about speaking 
through the media. And one of the things that Anne, who had a background in television journalism, taught ACT UP how to do in a genius move is she said, you always need to give a sound bite. You to give like a quick thing that they can use 10 to 15 seconds that they can use for the TV spot because that's all they're going to put. They're not going to put like a full length interview with a street activist. That's the exact same idea as a tweet. It's like a small, easily digestible piece of information that is catchy and gets your point across. And so I think social media is simply a tool that contemporary activists are using that build on the tradition of other activists. I'm so glad you brought up Anne Northrup. For those who don't know, she's a legendary activist who is a part of ACT UP and the Queer March, many things. When I interviewed her, she talked about how the job of the activist is not to be liked. It is to accomplish something specific about a specific issue, to advance progress. And I was trying to figure out how to think about, as I called it, you know, Instagram activism, because I see that operating directly against social media I think that we want to be liked, and for the first time ever, we can like quantify those likes with Instagram likes. Those two things don't go together for me. It's interesting, and I also think it's maybe a little bit more nuanced. When you're talking about being liked, it's about being liked by whom? Activists are meant to push the status quo. They're meant to push forward for progress. And I think that there are ways of using social media to say things that will make you very, very unpopular indeed. By saying things that make you unpopular, does that equal to, does that create like less social engagement then? It's a great question. And sometimes yes, and sometimes no. We know that having a take that is not always the mainstream take and having a take that's controversial, nothing brings more engagement than a controversial post. Like on Twitter, like nothing gets you more engagement than like when you have a fight or if you have beef with someone, or if you're saying something that's unpopular. That makes total sense. It's it's the tweets that are in all caps that get the most retweets. Exactly. And like, I recently posted something that was not, that got a lot of negative feedback and got two types of negative feedback. It got, you know, feedback that I would say was just, you know, pretty openly anti-Semitic. I posted something about anti-Semitism on the right. And people in the Jewish community were saying that I only post about anti-Semitism on the right and I don't post about anti-Semitism on the left. So that was one aspect of the controversy, if we want to call it that, or the non-likability. And then the other half was just sort of plain old anti-Semitism. And that post, which was not likable, is one of was like my most engaged during the election week because it had so many people yelling at each other on it. I think I've been so interested with social media activism because we see like a separation between words and actions. So an organization can post Black Lives Matter, but you know, how do they treat their staff who's Black? Do they have any staff that's Black or any in like leadership roles? And so we're seeing like that dichotomy. And so like that also crosses over to, you know, people in our own community, just like private citizens who will post these things on social media, but like, how are they operating in their like day-to-day lives? I I think that it just makes me wonder, like, and I'm the first person to say this, are people like posting about it on social media, but then stopping there? Is that like the only thing that they're doing? I mean, I think that there's no denying that that is partially what happens, but also if we're going to have a nuanced conversation about social media and activism, then it's important to talk about I think there's one, there's activists or community organizers or both using social media as a tool to spread information and to further advance their causes. And then there are also people that are just posting about social justice on their online profiles. And I think that those are two really different things. And so when an organizer posts and get a bunch of other people to post about their in real life protest, that's very different than a brand or a corporation posting, you know, reposting a graphic or an ideology. 
I'm so glad you brought that up, though, because sometimes with like the actual activist or organizer posting about things they're doing and then other people reposting it, if you look quickly, like their profiles look the same. And so actually just like me, I'll just say for me, sometimes I don't I cannot tell the difference by looking at these profiles. Totally. And I think that a lot of the conversation when it comes to social media activism is like, is it real activism? Like, is it re not real activism? And really, it's simply a tool that activists and community organizers now have. And it's a tool that I firmly believe our ancestors would be overjoyed with and thrilled about. That makes total sense. And just speaking personally, I guess for whatever reason, I'm uncomfortable with the performative nature of things overall. So I've been surprised at how reluctant I am to post about protests or other work that I do. And talking to you, it sounds like I need to get over that because this is a tool and it's a tool that's open to everyone. It's interesting. And I'm of the school of thought that posting about protest is good. Like I always say, especially to the younger, to the younger folks, like if you go to a protest, like, okay, for example, when Trump was consistently threatening to overturn DACA. And I said, if you go to a protest in support of Dreamers and you post about how you're at that protest, that means the person with an immigrant parent or the person who's an immigrant or the person with an immigrant loved one in school now officially knows that you're safe. And like, if let's say you're a straight ally and you go to Pride and you post about how you were at Pride, the queer people that follow you are now going to feel a little, might feel a little safer around you. And I think that that is activism. And when people, but if people don't want to post, that's fine. But I also say like, I very often when planning a protest or planning an action, whether it be a digital action or in real life action, I very often send out the flyer to people that have large social media followings. And I ask them to repost it. And I always say if one in real life person comes because you posted it to your 600,000 followers, a thousand percent worth it to make that graphic, a thousand percent worth it to make that post one because we need bodies and we not we need numbers and two who knows what that queer kid is going to take from the protest i appreciate you talking about this and everything you said so far just because it's something that i think a lot about and i'm just not quite sure like what my opinion is on it a lot of people have a lot of feelings about social media activism and my thought is sort of like unless you're an activist or an organizer who is doing the work while simultaneously providing a solution that is better than social media, then like, I don't really feel like I want to hear that. You know, like it is simply a tool that we have in our arsenal. We're in a state of consistent crisis and have been as far as I'm concerned since Pulse. So unless someone else has a bigger and better way of sharing and distributing information and organizing people together, I don't know what to say. I'm, oh, I'm all ears. I'm all ears. I'd love to hear it. Cut out Instagram and give me something else that makes more sense, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think everyone is wondering where to start always or how to begin to be involved if they're not already. Where did you yourself begin? So there are two answers to this question because not everybody lives in New York or Los Angeles or Miami where there are these huge networks everywhere. And that's why social media can provide a digital answer to those questions. And so if you live in New York or Los Angeles or other places where protests are happening often, I say the best thing to do, the first thing to do is just come, just come to the protest. You can come alone or with a friend. And the nature of queer protests historically, it's very difficult to leave that type of protest without making a friend or making a connection and then going back the next week and seeing the same people. But then if you don't live in a major city, the thing that I always say is no matter where you are, 
it is very likely that there's a queer person suffering, especially maybe a queer immigrant, refugee, or asylum seeker that is suffering. And so I say, go to your local LGBT center, tell them who you are, what you're best at, and ask how you can help. And if there isn't a local LGBT center, there's got to be some type of like LGBT support group and offer your skills. For you, your focus is on the larger queer community, the global queer community. Is that mission something that has been important to you from the start? Or is that something you found along the way? I would say that I have one large, big picture goal that I center my life around. And it is my, it's the theme of my first book. It's on the cover of my book. It's in my Instagram bio. It's everything that I believe in, which is that queer people anywhere are responsible for queer people everywhere. That means that I personally believe that queer people have an obligation to show up for each other across international, racial, gender, and identity lines, period. And is that where you have started out from the beginning with your eye on the global queer community? I did not. That is something that I learned. I began, I started doing queer activism in the days immediately following Pulse. Basically, I came out in 2009 and it was the era of Lady Gaga and Glee and Ellen and Obama. And, you know, every pop star had a Born This Way song. I mean, it sounds so ridiculous, but, you know, I was 18. I was pretty stoned. And I just thought that the battle for queer rights was sort of over. Like older people were just sort of like dealing with it because every year things got better and better and better. And then it was gay marriage. And I was like, oh, the trans tipping point, like trans people on TV. And then it was like, boom, pulse. I totally freaked out and I did like nothing for three or four days. And it came to pass that I just started posting all the time on Instagram. I was posting like every hour, maybe more. And then people were like, what should we do? And I was like, I have no idea. And I was like, well, if you want to be, if you don't want to be alone, meet me at this corner and we'll all go to the memorial together. And like 35 people showed up. My post had been up for like an hour and a half. And I definitely had maybe a thousand followers. So I was like, oh, wow, that was my first lesson. And like, turns out that like posting things on social media can like translate to action, actionable items and community in real life. Who knew? And then a few days later, I found myself at the first Gays Against Guns meeting. And the group was definitely much older than me. So I sat there with my mouth shut for like maybe six weeks, which I strongly recommend. And then the night before the protest, they were like, we need someone to do Instagram and Facebook at the same time from our first protest. And my hand just shot into the air. And because the group was older than me and not exactly... The group was older than me and basically they thought that whatever I was doing on social media was brilliant. Like, I don't know how great it was, but they were like, I mean, I was just like taking pictures and posting them and they were like, this is incredible. You're doing such a good job. You are now in charge of social media. And I was just like, okay. And that is how, that is where my trajectory with queer activism began. And so sticking there four years ago in the beginning, what were the learning curves? Like what were the mistakes you made when you were just first starting out? I think now I know, especially on Instagram, it's all about like clear communication. That's why, again, back to ACT UP, silence equals death. They were trying to say that no one's looking out for you. You have to do it yourself. That was like the original message, right? So like that is just incredibly clear and beautiful messaging. I did not expect to get backlash. I expected to get backlash from like the world, people, you know, calling me faggot and calling me all that kind of stuff. I did not expect to get backlash from within the queer community. That happens a lot, I learned. Backlash about what? Everything, just in general, from everyone. And there was, I mean, even in the early Gays Against Guns days, it came out the Pink Pistols, who are a group that believe that we need to arm queer people in order to keep them 
safe. And they like, we had, we ended up like debating them, you know, but I just, I didn't realize, I thought that if you were doing something good for the community or something that you thought was good for the community, everyone else would agree. It's not like that, which I didn't realize. I also didn't realize how difficult um, organizing would be. You know, if you think about it, like there is a system that is set up to make queer people feel less than, to make queer people feel other. And when you challenge that system, like think about all the things that are going against you. I mean, I could keep I could keep answering this question for days. <laughs> yeah, and we are often hardest on ourselves, queer people towards other queer people. It reminds me of something that you wrote in your book, which is that for a long time, your gut told you to treat other queer people with hesitation. I don't know if you have an answer for this, but I do want to know if you have any ideas or know where that feeling comes from. So often when I meet a queer person, especially another gay male, I can very, very often find myself being defensive. I can find myself comparing and contrasting or comparing and despairing, find myself being competitive or immediately uncomfortable. And I think that that's something that I still experience, that I actively and eagerly want to change within myself and within the community at large to reposition ourselves as allies on the same team, people who came from the same place that have faced the same type of oppression. But I think that two things. One, I think that it's a lot of internalized self-hatred. You know, when I see someone that sort of looks like me, I'm reminded of the things that I don't like about myself. And it's much easier to take that out on someone else than it is on yourself, especially if you don't know that person. And I also think that a key tool of oppression is turning oppressed groups against each other. It is much easier for an oppressor to let the oppressed, you know, fight it out amongst themselves than go in and tear them apart. And to that, you know, we've been talking about Instagram and online community. As an example of in-person community, when I moved to New York City in January, you invited me to a drag show my very first weekend here. And I probably didn't say this at the time, but that really meant a tremendous amount to me. Definitely. And like, yes, it's all about that type of like active and vigorous inclusion and trying to make as many people feel as comfortable as possible. Jeffrey, when you think about it, you and I were both born queer in a straight or non-queer world. And I think that that is enough of a reason to be kind and show up for you and share with you. Okay, so here's my Oprah question. If you were very good at being kind to other people, do you find it as easy to be kind to yourself? I don't always find it very easy to be kind to other people, um, <laughs> especially if those other people I feel threatened by. So like, especially if they're super beautiful or like super skinny, I have a lot of body issues that I deal with. So that is a constant challenge to me. And I'm saying that everyone should look at other queer people as though they're friends and on the same team. And sometimes I can do that but I can't always. With your body, lately you have been posting a lot about it. And one of the things you wrote that I thought was interesting was you said, my sex life was not fulfilling because people have issues with my body. My sex life was unfulfilling because I have issues with my own body. Exactly, yeah. Well, I'm saying exactly to something I said, yeah. <laughs> You're like, I agree, yes. <laughs> I'm like, that's so upset. When did you, it is well said. When did you come to realize that for yourself though? Okay, so that was a specific post about a specific hookup that I had because I went through I went through a phase where I was like, oh, I'm like a sex columnist, like using my Instagram to write about my sex life. And like, I don't do that as much anymore. Maybe I will, but that was definitely like a, a deep phase I went through. And I was hooking up with this guy who I thought was really, really hot. 
I really was super attracted to him. And he was super attracted to me. I know this because he told me so. He asked if we could hang out again later that night. And I still felt terrible. I still felt undesirable and unsatisfied emotionally and physically. And I realized then I was like, oh, like this isn't about finding people that are attracted to my body. It's about me being at peace with my body. Like I just had this beautiful person do everything that they possibly could physically, verbally and non-verbally and non-physically. And it still didn't work because it was on me because I wasn't feeling sexy. I mean, I, I realized a couple of years ago that like everybody I know who has an amazing body kind of like hates their body. And I was like, if you're like the Fire Island picture with like the perfect massive pecs the size of my like waist and like you still hate your body, I was like, what's the point? Oh, I, the first time that I ever posted about my body, I was terrified. I was I only kept up the posts because I got such positive feedback. And the thing that I learned that one shocked me and two, I learned it immediately was that so many people felt the same exact way as me. I had people full on porn stars like cocky boy porn stars reaching out to me being like, I totally identify with your post. I feel the same way about my body. Your post helped me. Here are my tips. It's like, oh, good. Like hating your body is a universal experience. I can like not give that any like weight anymore in my life. Or at least I cannot feel so alone because I would see all these boys, especially during pride and they would be topless and they'd be hanging out with each other and like flirting with each other and not flirting with me. And I just felt so deeply alone and people talk about you know you would go out and I'm like just like trying to be able to like take off my shirt while I'm making out with someone and I would just feel so isolated and I think for so long we just didn't talk about it once I posted that and I realized that I wasn't alone I just felt so I felt so much better you know another post that stood out to me that I remember was a series of insta stories with your father all about penis size and masturbation is that the kind of relationship that you had with him even while growing up? Yes, it is. <laughs> um, it is. My father was very, very open about talking to us about sex and masturbation. He's a penis doctor. He's a urologist who specializes in male infertility and male sexual dysfunction. And he also has a female sexual dysfunction center. And so it was always very, very open in our house. And this happened because I was writing my book and I came downstairs and I was like, I just need to give everyone a heads up that this book talks about me masturbating a lot. Cause like masturbation was a really big part of my, I mean, big part of my life and, but definitely a big part of my closeted experience. And I need everyone to be okay with that. And my father looks at me and he goes, good. I'm so glad that you said that because I think that your generation masturbates wrong and has a lot of wrong attitudes about masturbation. And I was like, okay, I'm going to need you to save that because that's my Thanksgiving content. The first year we did queer masturbation. And then the second year we did penis size and porn. That is not a conversation I have ever had with my parents, nor frankly, do I like ever want to. <laughs> and I know that's, that's just my own personal comfort level. I understand. I understand. The other one was about penis size and porn and about how porn, you know, distorts our view of sex and how distorts our view of penis size and how all men, my father believes that all men are convinced that they're good at directions and that they're good drivers and that their penis is too small. That's pretty amazing to be able to have those conversations with your father. Yes, it definitely is. My parents are both really incredible people and um, advocates in their own way. While I'm pulling things from your social media and having you like explain it, I have one more example, if that's okay. Please. 
you wrote about how you are still figuring out your gender identity. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder if you can like explain and like elaborate on like what you mean by that. Ah, <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And it's a good question because I don't totally have the answer. I know that I don't identify as a man. I don't like the word man. I also don't like the word dude. I know that I do identify as queer and I definitely identify as gay. But when it comes to the rest of my gender identity, I don't know. I'm not totally sure exactly where I stand. I think that like one of the coolest parts, I'll say, of our public conversation about gender over the last like two to three years is now it is okay for somebody to like say what you just said. You know, that my gender is something that I'm still figuring out. Like three years ago, I think, had you said that, I think we would not have known like how, how to have that conversation. Yeah, exactly. Like, here's what I here's what I have today. What I have today is that I don't like the word man. I don't like the word dude. And for now, he and they pronouns work fine for me. And when it comes to figuring out my gender, I don't know what else to say except that. Well, I think that like, if that is how you feel like forever, like that's also okay, you know? Yeah. When it comes to my social media, I'm pretty open about almost every part of my life. And I like that. It was a conscious choice that I made, one that I'm proud of and stand behind. But I usually like to share things after I get a little more comfortable with them. And so I'm comfortable sharing that I've been questioning my gender identity, but I just don't have that much more to share on it at the moment. Well, because of that, since you don't have it all figured out yet, as you just said, I I really do appreciate you talking about it today. And I appreciate the whole conversation. So thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much, Jeff. All right, big thank you to Adam for that. Once again, his book is called The New Queer Conscience. And if you want to find him on Instagram, he's on there under his name. That's at Adam Eli. And of course, our podcast is on Instagram at LGBTQPod. I'm on there at JeffMasters1. We love hearing from you and connecting every week. And if you're feeling generous, if you're feeling in the holiday spirit, well, please post about us on your own social media and tell anywhere from one to 500 of your closest friends. Err on the side of too many. We've been doing our annual listener survey. There is a link in the show notes for that. And one of the biggest things I've learned is that people find podcasts most reliably through personal recommendations. So please post about us, text your group chats about us, help us any way you can. Thank you so much to everyone who does that. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. Come check out all of our amazing work at advocate.com and glad.org. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I will see you next week. Bye.